This is episode 63 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2020 Annual Enrichment Conference Everyday Evangelism. This is session three, Tuesday night with Jeff Vanderstel, titled Gospel Fluency. So tonight I want to talk about this concept of gospel fluency. Um, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at this together with me. Ephesians 4. Let's see if we can get this up there. There we go. All right. So I'm going to start back in uh, verse 11, where it says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, this is all of us in different forms, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up of the body of Christ. I think you guys know this, but you, uh, if you've been given to the church as a gift, a, a people gift, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, you are not given to the church to do the ministry for the church. Okay? And I know a lot of us say, I got into the ministry. No, you got into the equipping. Okay? Your job was to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Yes, you lead as an example, as a fellow minister of the gospel, but every Christian is a minister of the gospel. And unfortunately, we've, we've separated that too much. And as a result, we wonder why we aren't seeing more evangelism take place. But here, part of the job of an evangelist is to equip God's people for the work of ministry, in particular, evangelism. So that's one of the gifts I've been given to the church, and I hope it serves you even tonight. And he says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or humanity, the true human, uh, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we know this, Paul says this elsewhere, just in your way, uh, that, that his job is to present everyone mature. And then here he defines maturity as the stature of the fullness of Christ, as defined earlier by the true apostle of our faith, the prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. So I'm not going to teach all that. I just want to, that's another talk. Uh, I want to keep going. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And this is the verse I want us to focus on. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, every way, how many ways? Every way, okay, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped. When each part, key, each part is working properly, it then makes the body grow up uh, and it builds itself up in love. Now, I want to come back to that phrase, speaking the truth in love. Now, I don't know how you have applied that phrase in the past. I know for me... Uh, I used to think or hear speaking the truth in love is me needing to say something really hard to you and doing it in a loving way. So like, James, you know, I love you, but fashion has really kind of gone off the side. I don't know what's happening. I was with you eating last night. You were really rude to Mary Beth. I love you, but I got to speak the truth in love. None of that's true, by the way. Great fashion, and he loves his wife, Craig. But just that's how many of you have heard that, that phrase applied that way? right? Now, there are times, yes, we have to speak truthfully in ways that are oftentimes sharing a hard word in a loving way. But we're misunderstanding what Paul is doing here, because if all he's talking about is correction, then how do you build everybody up in every way by only telling them what's wrong? It's not just that. In fact, whenever we know this, whenever you study the Bible, you read the text in the text, you always understand the text within the context, 
of the first of the place it's found and then in the overall narrative of the Bible. So we keep reading and we look at verse 20 through 21. Now to get to 20 to 21, we hear Paul say this in verse 17, I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This is going to help us understand what we're talking about when we say the truth in love. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they become calloused and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of maturity. Now, that's important. We'll stop, pause there. Paul's going to tell us why they do that. Because here's the problem. If we think, if I just teach people the right way and tell them what to do and how to do it, and I can just change their behaviors, then we'll form people into the image of Christ. And Paul doesn't say that here. He says, if you don't do what I'm about to say here in this next verse, you actually can't grow people up in Christ. They'll still stay ignorant, darkened, alienated, calloused, unable to actually obey. Okay? So then he goes further. That's not the way you learned Christ. Okay? Verse 20. Assuming, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, and say this with me, as the truth is in Jesus. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying if we're going to grow up into every way into Christ, we must learn to speak the truth of Jesus Christ into everything. I want to say that again. If we're going to grow up in every way into Christ, we must learn to speak the truth of Jesus Christ into everything. And I'll say it the other way. Any way in which you give people something other than Jesus Christ to grow them up in a particular aspect of their life is a way of leading them away from Jesus in that aspect of their life. I'm going to say that again. Any way in which you give people something other than Jesus Christ as the thing that should grow them up in a particular area of their life into Christ-likeness, anytime you give them something other than Jesus, you will lead them away from Jesus in that area of their life. Okay? And I could go on and on and on about all the areas. Sex, money, relationships, work, how we parent, how we do marriage, all of it. We should, as mature believers in Jesus, be able to speak how the truths of Jesus in terms of his life death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and present intercession on our behalf applies to those areas of our life. In any way in which we don't, we will lead them away from Christ. Okay? How many of you, I, I want to ask you to raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you. Okay? But many of us probably use Dave Ramsey's teaching on how to deal with budgeting and finances and all that. I'm not going to dig on Ramsey. I am going to say, however, it's very possible you could lead them away from Jesus by teaching them Ram Ramsey's principles, okay? And I'm not saying don't use them. I'm just saying the gospel is really clear about money, right? He who was rich became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich. When Paul teaches the church in Corinth about giving, he doesn't give them a budgetary principle and a bunch of guidelines on how to set aside money. He says, look at Jesus. Look at what he did for you. He was rich. He became poor in his poverty. You became rich. And so he speaks to the motivational part of the heart with the gospel first before he gives the instruction on how to do it. Then, of course, he does give instruction, like set it apart on the first day of the week. That was the practice that they did. Well, we connect that to the first fruits principle in the big, bigger narrative of the Bible that God always called them to give their very best first, trusting that he would bring the best as well as a response. And then Jesus becomes the first fruit offering of God. And now also with Jesus, we will also get every other good gift as well. And so do we know how to speak the gospel to that? Or do we go, hey, church, if you don't give, we won't be able to afford what we need. 
we'll probably have to close up as a church, so we use fear, guilt, shame as a motivation instead of the gospel. Okay? We can apply this to all kinds of things, and it should be applied to everything. I remember a, a time when we were having a, our, our, we call it missional communities, a small group with a missional focus. Uh, we were having a meeting together, and one of the women was complaining about her boss. And, uh, you know, what, what do we often do in those settings? We usually agree, yeah, you're right. He's a jerk. You deserve better. And, you know, there's a certain place for empathy and hearing people out and engaging in their suffering and mourning with those who mourn. But there's another side of joining them in their complaining, right? And so that's what this was. And I, I was thankful because I heard a few ladies pull aside and said, hey, stop, guys. She doesn't need that. She's already struggling going to work. For a boss, she doesn't feel like notices her or pays her what she deserves or is given her the promotion she hoped for. But we're not helping her at all by saying you deserve better. And then this woman said, well, let's stop and just pause. What does she actually deserve? Now, my kids, when they were younger, uh, we would drive down the road in our air-conditioned, climate-controlled van with different zones of climate control and the video screen that could drop down and they could pick their movies and they all had their own beautiful leather seats that had plenty of leg room. Unlike the, the, the station wagon that I grew up driving in where you're just like you're beating each other up because you have no room, right? And so I, I remember one particular time we're driving down the road and they're complaining about lots of things they shouldn't be complaining about and I pull over to the side of the road and I said, kids, before we go any further, what do you all deserve? And they said, death. As I taught them the, part, the gospel, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift. I said, what did you get? And they said, eternal life. I said, so this thing we're doing right now, we've forgotten what we deserve and we've forgotten what we've been given, which is why we're complaining. And thankfully, the lady did the same thing with this woman. What do you deserve? She said, death. And she said, what have you gotten? She said, not only have I got eternal life. And she basically counseled her into the truths of the gospel. I've not only been given for eternal life and God loves me, but I do have a job and I am having my needs met. And, and then they went on further and said, okay, let's keep going. I know that you wish you had, you were raised up higher in, the, in the, the position in your company that you hoped you'd attain to. You didn't get it. But where are you actually seated? What, what, what is the height of your stature in the world? And they reminded her, you're seated with the heavenly, in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. And you're wanting your boss to give you affirmation, but you have the Father in heaven saying, you're my dearly beloved with whom I'm well pleased, even though he sees everything about you and knows apart from Jesus, that would not be true. But in Jesus, it is true. And they just reminded her of all the truths of the gospel. And I remember one of the women said, you know, I used to work for Pharaoh too. I used to work for Pharaoh too. And what she was saying is, I used to look to my human boss as my, my Lord, as my king, as my God. And then I realized I don't have to work for Pharaoh any, every day. I can go to work for Jesus, and therefore I'm not a slave to my work anymore. And that woman got set free that day from seeing work as the primary way in which she got her approval, her significance, her, even her provision. Now, how do you get to that place where that becomes normative, where the people of God are not only entering into the pain, because we need to do that, because it's also by his wounds that we're healed, and so that's real. But they also can remind each other what is true for each other in the gospel. How do you get there? Now, first of all, I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes thing. Every time I do training, I try to make sure a few things happen. Tonight's going to go pretty practical, okay, with you guys. I, I usually recognize that training works this way. And hopefully you are working this out in your own churches, or you'll think about how to do it in your own ministries. Training always starts with helping people move from being 
unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. Right? I mean, that's the gospel, too. Like, when I preach the gospel, I know there are people in the room who are ignorant to the truth that they need a Savior. And because I believe that, I, I have to speak to them and help them recognize their need before I can give them the solution. The same is true in this case. Like, hopefully, as I was giving you some of those illustrations, you were going, oh, I don't know if I know how to do that yet. Right? And then I, therefore, I did my job if you went from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. Now, some of you will be like in The Matrix. Remember the movie? Some of us are old enough to remember The Matrix. Uh, he's like, you know, Morpheus is having the stake. I know this isn't really, not Morpheus. Um, uh, I can't remember his name. He's... Ne- yeah, not Neil's not having the stake. It's the other guy who goes back in. Okay, Cipher. There we go. Cipher. Look at you guys. You guys are my age. All right. Uh, they're having the. St- he's having the stake because I know this isn't really steak. But you know, I would much. Basically, he says uh, to be ignorant of this reality is it would be better to go back into the machine and not know it. Right. And by the way, that's what's going to happen to some of the people in your church when they're like, we want to help you understand that you could be a fluent people. You could know the gospel, believe the gospel, speak the gospel all of life. They're going to go, yeah, it was a lot easier just to go back to going to church, right? And so I just want to encourage you, don't give up. That's going to happen because that happens almost everything when we learn a new thing. It's really painful to go now from conscious incompetence to conscious competence. That's the hardest work. Anybody learn how to golf? Do you remember when you learned? It wasn't fun. There's nothing about golf that is fun. That's why most people quit. Because this is a long ball, a long walk chasing a ball, back and forth, you know. And so, but then you move from conscious competence to unconscious competence. I still think MJ is the greatest basketball player around. Anybody with me? Okay, I know you don't agree, but you guys are young. You don't, you don't get it yet. You'll learn one day. Um, uh, but people used to say, and I know they say this about all the others that are great, that guy's unconscious. And what they mean is he doesn't even know he's doing it. He's so good at it. And that's where we want to get to with the gospel. It's the, the, the very word that gave us our birth. It should be our mother tongue. And that's what fluency is. It's when you speak it in such a way you don't have to process through it. How many of you learned a, a foreign language? Okay. How many of you actually are fluent? How many had to live in the place to develop fluency? Okay. The hands, almost few, were, you know, hardly anybody was there, but that's the norm, right? That, that you had to get to a place where you were immersed in it so much that eventually you woke up realizing you were dreaming in that language. And you started to, tr- you tr- started to translate the, lang- the, the, the world through that language. You didn't go, like in my case, Spanish. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm hearing Spanish. In my head, I want to say English. I think English. Now i got to translate in my head to Spanish. And then I say Spanish out loud. That's not fluency. Fluency is when I hear Spanish, think Spanish, feel Spanish, speak Spanish without all the in-betweens. That's how we want to get with the gospel where we are so fluent in it that we take in the world through the lens of the truths of Jesus Christ. And as we think, we're thinking the truths of Jesus Christ. And as we go to speak, we're speaking the truths of Jesus Christ to the point at which we don't have to stop and think about it anymore. I promise you, almost all of us are going to take a lot of work to get there. But we ought to want that because that's what God's people are. They are fluent in the gospel. If we're going to grow up in a maturity, we have to learn how to speak these truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. So that's what we're going to talk about. In particular, I'm going to talk about how do we do it with us first? How do we do it in the church, with the, the body of Christ? Before tomorrow, we talk about how we bring it out into a world. I'm convinced, I may be wrong, I'm convinced that one, there's a lot of reasons why I think we're not effective in evangelism. I think one is because we don't do it with each other. This is the safest place to do it, with people who agree. Who, who already believe it, 
And who say Mufasa? Or say it again. You know, every time the gospel's preached, right? This should be the easiest place. Where do you learn a language? In a place where people are helping you learn the language, and they already know it. And so the church should be the safest place to practice becoming fluent in the gospel. So I want to just talk about a few ways we can do this. First of all, we've got to practice this, rehearse it regularly in the church as often as we possibly can. I'm going to give you an example of how to do this. This is something you could do in your groups. I do this with my kids at the dinner table, okay, and I'm going to do it with us. So if you aren't used to audience participation, it's happening now, okay? Here we go. So here's what I want to do. I want you to just think about life of Jesus, death, burial, resurrection. I didn't put ascension, intercession. I just ran out of page, the page. So just take those four, but I try to do it with all six of those pieces of the realities of, of Jesus. Let me try it with you. What is so good? What is the good news about Jesus' life? Okay, we're going to take one. Raise your hand so you can help me. Otherwise, it would be everybody. It's perfect. Why is that good news? We're not. Okay, don't go to the cross yet. Yes, but you're getting there. It's good. Stay in the life a little longer. It's good. Okay, we, that is true. Uh, but we, he's, his life is perfect. We are not. He fulfilled the law for us. He obeyed God in every way. And he fulfilled the requirements of the law so that we are no longer enslaved to the law or need to live up to the law. Yeah, what else? He showed us what it really means to be human. Okay? So perfect, we're not, fulfilled the requirements. He showed us what it really means to be human, which Paul calls righteousness. Like you, Sometimes you have to translate things to people like in your church. Like, hey, when we say righteousness, we mean he was actually human the way you were made to be. And so do you want to all be fully human? That's the best life you could have. And Christ did it. Yeah, keep going. Okay, he demonstrated his divinity. Why is that good news? Because God's perfect, but why is that good news? Can you keep going? You don't get to answer again. Someone else? Why is it good news that he demonstrated the divinity of God? God is perfect. Yes. Okay, so now we have in all of Jesus' life a perfect example. Okay, and that's connected to divinity because we've got to come back to that because that's a whole other piece, right? Go ahead. He is God. Why is that good news? He's not just a good man. I don't know. Is that good news or not? How is that good news? Don't, don't worry. I believe it's all good news. So don't, don't start praying for me or something. Yeah. He was sinless. Why is that good news? Because we are sinners. Why is that good news? Showed it. Okay, keep going. Only God can reconcile all things to God. By the way, I'm not like saying your answers are wrong. I'm just asking you to keep diving into the depths of the gospel. Because could, we could do this all night long and never end. See, the problem that we do with the gospel is we've kind of truncated it to this like and it should, it's very simple. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's, that's important. It's also everything you just said. And we could keep going, right? We could say that the good news about his life is he gets everything you go through and he overcame like you don't. And the good thing about his life is that he, he understands you and your situation and your struggle right this moment because he went through it. 
And the good thing about his life is we see God in human form, and therefore, as image bearers of God, we can be a picture of God in Christ to a bunch of people in the world that are still darkened by their own understanding and ignorance. And we can keep going and going. So let's go to the next one. And I'm not going to do this with everyone because I don't have enough time. Okay? Why? And I'm going to go to his burial instead of his death. Why is his burial good news? Because Paul concludes that in the gospel. His burial. Why is that good news? He's really dead. Why is that good news? Because on one hand, we're like, that doesn't sound like good news, that he's really dead. But why is that good news? Yeah, so if the wage of sin is death and Jesus is truly dead, then we know that he was willing to pay for it. He wasn't sleeping. He's really dead. Okay? Why, why is this? Yes. We really die. Galatians says that, uh, that I no longer live. I've, I've been crucified with Christ, and therefore I no longer live, but I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My life is dead too. Which is really good because that's all the bad stuff I don't want to have to be reminded of or identified with, right? But you see what I'm doing? Everybody in your church could do what I just did with their family, with their small group, with their kids at their dinner table. And they could just say, hey, let's take one of them for a week. Mom and dad, we're going to talk about Jesus' life. And kids, we're going to ask you questions. Because we want you to own your faith, not just be told it. And I, I have found that when I do this, my kids and other people I disciple, they start to realize the gospel really addresses everything in life. Because we could have kept just going on his life and said, why is that good news for school, kids? Why is that good news for, for work, Dad? Why is that good news for parenting? And we could keep going. And all of a sudden, we realize we have good news to speak to everything. So this is an exercise I try to do, have our groups do regularly. By the way, if we have time either tonight or tomorrow, we'll have some time for questions because it might have raised up some questions as we were doing it. Okay? Uh, second, preach Jesus through every text. Those of you who are teachers or preachers, preach Jesus through every text. And I know some of you might go, well, I don't, why? Well, because Jesus did. So um, Luke 24, 25 through 27, he said to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessarily that the... Oh, by the way, I should set up the context. This is after he rose from the dead. He's on the road to Emmaus, just to keep you in mind. And then he appears to people that don't quite recognize him yet until he breaks bread. Remember, then they kind of realize he was with us. That was Jesus. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so that's the Torah, the prophets, and, and most would say this includes the writings, Old Testament writings, uh, so Ecclesiastes, all the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs. He interpreted to them, to, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been at that Bible study? Where you're like, no way. It was all about you the whole time? We thought it was about us. By the way, have you ever been with a new Christian or a person just kind of working through discovery of the faith and they're reading through the Bible and they, you didn't tell them where to start so they started in Genesis and they come to you, you know, about 12 chapters in, maybe 15 or so, and, and they say to you, like, I don't get it. It seems like everybody in this story is all messed up, right? And you go, just keep reading. It gets worse, <laughs> right? And then you help them see that the Bible is not a story about humanity. It's about a story of God who loves his rebellious humanity and that there is no human ever that's ever lived who lived perfectly submitted to God. Everyone's a rebel. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone deserves death. 
And then Jesus shows up, and then you look at Jesus, and you go like, finally, finally the one we've all been longing for. The, the story is meant to make you long for Jesus and say, would somebody show up and at least do what God wants? And that's Jesus. And then you reread the story, and you realize every single part of the Bible was creating a longing, a hunger, a, a gap, pointing you to, to somebody else. Every single passage of the Bible is meant to make you want to find Jesus through the text. Okay? So when we preach the Bible and people walk away thinking it was about them, you failed. It's not about you. It's not about what you should do or what you shouldn't do, though it says that. Ultimately, it says you can't do and you will not do because you need one who did, and that's Jesus Christ. Right? And some of us need to repent of the fact that we've been preaching in such a way that we put the emphasis on humans to be God instead of Jesus to be God on our behalf. Right? We put the emphasis in the wrong place. I remember sitting in a, a service with my brother. I was in Michigan, and, you know, I want to honor the pastor, so I'm not going to say anything more than that. But was, I was sitting next to him, and, you know, you're singing songs, and the band, like, gets you, like, pretty excited about the truths of God. And I was like, yeah, and they're, they're excited, and they sit down, and the guy gets up and starts preaching, and he's preaching the text on the soil and the seeds. And I'm sitting next to my brother, and, of course, he's saying, you know, like, What's, is your soil ready? And are you hardening your heart? And are you willing to receive? And if you read the Bible and love it, then you probably are. And if you have a hard time reading the Bible and don't enjoy it, then you probably aren't. And I'm watching my brother as the guy is preaching. And he started sitting like this. And by the end, he's just started going like this. And he's just like depressed. I think it was Kierkegaard who said, sin turns you in on yourself. And I thought, Wow, we ended up thinking about ourselves, and we all walked out thinking it was all about us. Instead of going like, the truth is, there's only one who can change the soil, and there's only one true seed, and that's Jesus. It's not our ability to read the Bible. It's Jesus, the true seed of God, who comes and breaks even hardened hearts and makes their hearts of stone, hearts of flesh, and that he will till the soil by his spirit as you continue to come to him and he does the work in you. And he gets to be the hero of the text by the time we're done. And if you get done with a message and nobody wants to sing praise to Jesus because it was all about you, then we failed as preachers of the gospel. Now, some of you go, might go, how do we do this? I can't think of a better example in our day than Tim Keller. Okay, so if you haven't heard of him, you should. Uh, he does six messages on preaching to the heart that you can find at Gordon Conwell Seminary. Uh, it's free. So I know you like that. Uh, he also did some training with uh, Edmund Clowney that's a much more dense. Uh, it was his doctoral thesis that you could find at, um, at uh, oh, what's the seminary I said to you earlier in Florida? RTS, thank you. Uh, so if you need to grow in this, I encourage you to do that. Uh, Edmund Clowney is one of the foremost teachers on it in terms of his books. Uh, Sidney Gradanus talks about how you preach Christ through all the text. So I just encourage you, it's, it, it is absolutely necessary that we grow in this if we're going to teach the Bible. Because that we are supposed to present Christ through the text. Okay? Amen? All right. Also, preach like unbelievers are present. Those of you who teach or preach. Just assume they're in the room. James mentioned this last night. I learned this from Keller as well. He said, you know, if you start preaching like they're in the room 
eventually your church is going to believe that you want them in the room and that you're ready for them to be in the room. And then when they're in the room, they'll be safe enough to hear the good news of Jesus. And your church is going to actually believe they might. I found this to be true. You need to do it, depending on your situation, at least a year or more until they're going to trust you. Most people are like, I'm not trusting you with the neighbor that I live next door to. Because if you mess it up, i got to live next to him, not you. Right? Or coworker or whatever it may be. I stepped into a very broken situation, and it's taken us about three or four years until they trusted me enough to not kind of go public with bad news and that they were going to have to apologize to their neighbors afterward. So, so it takes a long time. But I didn't give up. Now, the other thing that happens, when you preach like unbelievers are present, you train all the believers on how to share the gospel with their unbelieving friends. That's what you do. Because they're like, oh, I never thought about saying righteousness that way. Or I never thought that that text applied to Jesus and my neighbor needs that. And so all of a sudden you're training the church through your preaching, not just making them kind of satisfied with it. That makes sense? Okay. We could do more on that. Four, preach, I'm sorry, teach people to share their story, their testimony, making Jesus the hero. Have you, have you ever been like, in a place where someone's sharing their testimony, and by the time they got done, you're like, man, I wish I would have lived a more sinful life. Like, because my testimony is kind of boring. I grew up in a Christian home, and, you know, I never really rebelled. I didn't, like, like, do drugs. I didn't get put in prison. I didn't kill anybody. So what do I have to talk about? Jesus. He's enough. But when people learn how to tell their story, making much of them and their sin, people don't get Jesus through the testimony. And so we teach all of our people and we expect every member of our church, and they all do, practice sharing their story, making Jesus the hero. Now, by the way, when you do this, you find out if they're actually a Christian or not. Because if, if Jesus is not the hero of the story, they're probably not yet a believer. Or at least they need to grow in what it means to articulate what he did. And so I, I'm going to pause here and just give you an acronym that I use for all my training, and then I'm going to show you how we apply this to the story. I, I ask everybody who trains content at our church in Bellevue, Washington, to make it deeper. And this, I just like acronyms, um, but I'll show you how this connects to Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus, everything he did, he demonstrated. Whatever he expected his disciples to do, they saw him do it. Okay, that's really important. Second, he expounded. Always, you've heard it said, but I say, and there was the text being brought to some training, the biblical text. And then they usually experienced him do it with them. Then he sent them out to practice it which then expose their unbelief, their inability, their ignorance, their fears, their insecurities, their wounds. And then he'd come back and he'd reflect with them. What did you experience and what was that like? And why did you do this that way? And why did you keep the kids from me? Blessed are the little ones. You know, and he taught them that again. And then the cycle went, and you could add another R, but that deeper R is a little too much. So, and that's just repeat. Uh, we repeat this. So I do this with a story in terms of teaching our people. Uh, we expect all of our people that are going to be committed to DOXA to go through what we call DOXA 101, 201, 301. I know it's super creative, but I live in a techie zone, and they all live in numbers and codes, okay? They're all writing code all the time. So I'm no longer allowed to be creative, only technical, okay? So I'm just kidding. I'm still somewhat creative. Uh, but we, we take them through 101. In 101, it's like lunch after our gathering. We introduce them to who we are as a church, what we believe. We're really straightforward about our distinctives, including our view on, on sexuality and gender at that point, because where I'm at, if they t find out later, they get mad at you because you weren't honest. 
We have more, I think in many ways, more uh, gay and lesbian, LBGTQ people in our community because we were straightforward and we still teach the Bible. And they've told me, Jeff, we can't find a church that still teaches the Bible. That's affirming. So like here we're at a church that's not affirming, but you teach the Bible, so we're willing to be here. So we're straight about that. We talk very openly about Jesus and say, this is all about him. We're going to train you all how to talk about him. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, we're going to train you how to make disciples of Jesus. And so we do that in the 101, 201. We explain how we do it. 301 is a four-week course, and they, they have a meal. The first night, they get together. They set up table. We set up tables. We provide food. They show up. They sit at the tables according to region, and they, they start to get to know each other. Uh, after they eat and introduce each other, I say, hi, I'm Jeff. I think you know who I am, but uh, I get to lead the church in teaching here along with others. I uh, just want to let you know this is the last night that we will set up your table and provide your meal. It's now up to you to do it. Okay, what am I doing? I go back to the, the acronym. I'm doing deeper training. Demonstrated it. Okay, then I actually, if you, if you you'll put that up on the screen. Demonstrated it, expound it. I teach on how we're one body with many parts. I say you're all going to bring a common meal next week. You don't get to bring your own meal. You often bring a part of a meal that you share as a table because I want you to feel what it's like to have one member of the body missing. So if main course doesn't show up, you're all going to go, that really stunk. We just had salad and bread and, and drinks, right? And that's what it is to be the body of Christ. So I give them very clear demonstrative experiences around when a member doesn't show up and play their part. So they do that, and then, then we teach them they got to set up because we're going to learn how to practice hospitality and create a space. And I tell them they can use any furniture in the whole building of the church to create their space. Uh, so they have a lot of fun with that. And then I say, hey, we're going to teach you on the gospel tonight, which is basically what I did with you guys this morning. And then I say, I'm going to train you how to tell your story making Jesus the hero. Now, before I train you how to do it, I'm going to let you know you're all going to have to do it by the end of these four weeks. Now, you can imagine most people are used to sitting in church and have someone talk to them, and I just turned it on them and said, you're going to talk to each other about Jesus. Like, that changed the narrative. Now, back it up. In the very beginning, we said, we are going to train you how to be disciples who make disciples. If you want to be a part of that kind of church, this is the church for you. By the way, I have non-Christians who actually stay the course. Because they're like, at least I'm going to figure out what you believe and what it would look like if I was going to be a follower of Jesus. You're going to make it really clear. It's not like something in the back door, like maybe it's a Mormon church thing where eventually you're going to come out and go, ha ha, you didn't know, but here's the real deal, right? No, it's right in front of you the whole time. Okay, sorry, I, if you're a Mormon, and I hope you get saved today. Um, so then we train on it, okay? And here's what I do. I just say, okay, we're going to walk through the biblical narrative of creation, fall, and I actually would like to change that to rebellion. I think it's a much clearer word for this context. Fall sounds like a season or a trip, but it's neither of those. We rebelled. Okay, so I've actually been thinking about changing it to creation, rebellion, redemption, new creation. And we just teach them to ask these four questions of themselves. In my own story, what was my identity in? What did I used to put my hope in for who I am? Not my hope, my significance, my sense of security. Uh, who was I and how did I find out who I was? Uh, and then we're going to talk about how, how that's changed in our story. Then what was my problem? What, what was it that I thought was keeping me from being who I believed I'm called to be or meant to be? And what ultimately was I looking to for my solution and then as I was looking to the future, what was my ultimate hope? So I take them through that, and I say, now I'm going to set a timer, and I'm going to set it for 15 minutes, and I'm going to share my story, okay? And I'm going to ask you to ask those questions, and I put this up while I'm doing, well, actually, I keep this one up. Um, 
I want you to pay attention to my story. And I'm not going to, I don't have time to tell you my story, but I'll give you the highlights, okay? The highlights of my story is I grew up in a Christian home, wonderful parents, but a shame-based church. So when people uh, got caught in certain kinds of sins that the church didn't want the public to know about, they brought them up in front of the church. Now, all kinds of other sins were never brought in front of the church, like greed and pride and selfishness and bigotry and all kinds. That, that was never brought up. But the few, like getting caught getting pregnant, that was brought up in front of the church because that's the thing you have to kind of get a, a red letter on you for, right? And I know that some of you are going like, I know that church, right? Um, so that was the kind of church environment I was brought up in. And, of course, I ended up getting in a place where I was going to be one of those people who had to come on the stage, okay? Now, my girlfriend made it up, and she wasn't actually pregnant, but she told my youth leader she was, and I did the, I sinned, and so that, that needed to be owned. My parents, when I told them in the news that I had gotten my, that I thought I got my girlfriend pregnant, the first thing they did is hug me and said, no matter what, we love you, and nothing will ever change that. It's one of the first times I experienced the grace of God in my life. Now, I learned quickly how to play the part and never get caught, okay? I know that shame can lead me to humility and, and to God, or it can lead me to performance and pretending, I learned the other. I learned how to hide. And I became really good at performing in everything I did, including Jesus. So I was a fake Christian until I was 21. I'd go door-to-door evangelism. I, I was the president of my youth ministry. Everybody would have thought I was a great Christian unless they went to my school. And everyone there would never have thought I was a Christian. They thought I was the party animal, the athlete, you know, good school grades, all that. But they would have never thought I belonged to Jesus. What did I learn how to do? I just learned how to put on the front and act the part. Now, if I were to go back to that picture, what was my identity in? Primarily what people thought of me, people's opinion. What was my problem? Eventually, I realized I could not. By the way, when I tell my story, I don't do this. I'm doing this with you guys. I usually tell the story and show how it doesn't work many, many times over and how Jesus set me free because I finally realized at 21 that he saw me, he knew me, he loved me, and regardless of what I did, his death on the cross was sufficient to be the best performance ever needed to forgive me my sins and make me righteous before God. And when that dawned on me and I really believed it, I got on my knees and I surrendered my life to him, and I have still struggled with the very same thing I grew up with, which wanting to perform for people's approval, but I keep going back to the cross, remembering he performed for me, he sees me, he loves me, he forgives me, and my only hope for future standing before God with the performance that will measure up is Jesus Christ. That's my only hope. Now, I didn't give you the 15-minute version. I gave you like the five-minute version, okay? But I, I, and I go a lot more transparent than I just did with you guys. Why? Because I want my church to start learning how to confess their sin, I want them to realize it's a place of grace. I want them to see that their teaching pastor is not afraid to admit the ways in which he has fallen short of the glory of God and then boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if, if we don't show them how to do that, they're not going to do it with each other. They're certainly not going to do it with a world who's going to tear them to shreds when they talk about Jesus. And so how are you forming your people in that way? We, we, we've been so encouraged. I just want to pause a minute. I had a counselor come to our church and she said, oh, I'd really like to start attending your church, but I'm a little nervous because I, most of my clients now are from your church. And some of you guys are going, like, you have a messed up church, um, or we have a safe church. And this is what she said. She said, the reason why I want to come to your church is because I see people in the worst situation. And you know what she said? Your people are more versed in the gospel than anybody I've ever counseled before. And I don't say that to take credit. I say it because there's a whole church committed to what I'm talking about speaking the truth of the gospel to one another in everyday life. 
And it's been a lot of work. But when a counselor is telling me, your people know the gospel, believe the gospel, know how to speak the gospel, and they're still broken, but they've got the base, they've got the foundation, they've got the necessary ingredients to deal with their brokenness. She's like, your people are the easiest to counsel. Cause, but I want to be here at this church because I want to be sitting under the same teaching, but they all know me. <laughs> so we helped her navigate that, and she's a part of our church now. Now, is that true of your context, that people are versed in the gospel, soaked in the gospel, speaking the gospel, sharing their story, so at the end, Jesus is the hero? Lastly, proclaim the gospel through the meal. How many of you guys uh, celebrate, take communion together in your church? Okay, I want to ask the next question out loud. I'm just going to, um, how often? Don't raise your hand, okay? Um, the reason why I ask this is because, and I'm not saying you have to do what I'm talking about, but Paul says as often as you do it, you proclaim his death. Now, there's a key there. He's not just saying as often as you do it, it's good for you, and it is. But as often as you do it, you're actually practicing proclaiming the gospel. So there's something beautiful about Jesus giving us a remembrance meal. How did, how did Israel tell the story of of, pass, of redemption from Egypt, the Passover meal. It wasn't just so they would go, let's remember. It's so that these families would raise their kids telling the story around a meal. So that every meal now, they'd be thinking of the story. And if you eat three meals a day, seven a week, that's 21 times of potential remembrance of Jesus. And so the meal was meant to frame up every meal in such a way that every re meal becomes a redemptive reminder of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Unfortunately, because of, I know, efficiency and all kinds of things, we've reduced it to a cracker and a little cup. And that, that not, I'm not tearing that down. But if we're not careful, we miss the connection to everyday meals. And so I just want to encourage you to think about how you're engaging the communion remembrance moment, the Lord's Supper, in such a way that it's training God's people. Okay? Uh, I, I think I shared this earlier, but I want to unpack it, unpack it a little more. We realized, and it really came upon me like one of those, I don't know how you guys learn things. Most of the, my stuff I stumble upon, right? It's like I didn't figure it out. It's like the Spirit of God said, he's going to need a little help here. Let's just push him into this one. So that was this. We were having time together with our missional community, and we were trying to learn how to practice remembering Christ through breaking bread and taking the cup together. And as I was about to do it in kind of a normal fashion, reading the text, now let's take time to remember him. Let's pause and make sure we examine our hearts and cherish him ourselves before we remember him together. And so I was doing that, and I had this moment where the Spirit said, why don't you ask them why they need it? Instead of just having them take it, why don't you ask them why they need it? And then instead of you being the guy who tells them why it's good news, tell them to tell each other why it's good news. So I stopped, and I said, Okay, we're going to try something new. Let's see how this works. We, we never do this again. I don't know. <laughs> Let's try it. I said, why don't one of us just start and say, why do we need this tonight? What are we working through in our lives that would lead us to need Jesus today? And just say that out loud. And then, and then I'm going to ask another person to take the element, bread, and remember that's, that reminds us of his life, his perfect righteousness, his life of obedience and submission, God in flesh for us, going to the cross for us, and the cup this blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins to remove all guilt, shame, fear of punishment. And, and we just kind of walked through the elements. And I said, apply those to their need. Okay? And so I remember Nikki was an older woman in our group that uh, was very boisterous and full of life. Love Nikki. And she's with the Lord now. But um, she said, I'll go first. And she had just come to faith in Jesus. I shared a little bit about her uh, earlier. 
She's in her late 70s. She said, you know, I look at all you young people, and I think you have your whole life to live for Jesus, and I wasted mine, and I have so much regret. If only I had come to know him earlier, I would have lived a far different life. And one of the young women grabbed the bread and said, I want to let you know, Nikki, that Jesus is a redeemer, and he takes what we think are lost years, and he makes up for all of it. And your story and your life is a testimony of God's grace in ours. And so as you take the bread, I want to remind you of the sufficiency of Jesus' righteousness. His life is your life. You need to have no more regrets because the life of Christ is your life. And then she took the, the cup and she said, I know you have regret, and that's connected to shame. But Jesus has shed his blood on the cross to cover that, to remove the guilt, to cover the shame, and make you lovely and acceptable before God the Father. Take, eat, and drink, and remember this tonight, Nikki. And then I had shared a little bit about my own story, and I was having a, it was January, and I don't look back very much. I'm a kind of a look forward guy, but January I look back, and I was having regrets about the year, and I shared some of my discouragement over the last year of ministry and wished there had been more fruitfulness in our church. And, and uh, Randy, a guy who I had been discipling, said, hey, Jeff, as he grabbed the bread, he said, I want to remind you that this really isn't about you, and the church isn't dependent on you. So he, if you guys like Enneagram, he's an eight, okay? So he just like went right to the jugular, you know, and like, but I needed that. He's like, it's not about you and it's not dependent on you. And therefore, no matter how well you think you've done, he's sufficient. And then he took the, the cup and he said, and I know that you live in that place of shame because I know your story. By the way, they know my story. They know how to speak the gospel to my brokenness. He said, I want to remind you, there is no more shame for you. Christ is your righteousness. He's the head of the church. He's not looking to you and your performance. He's looking to himself for you. And he did really well. Receive, Jeff, the bread and the cup. And I took and I ate and I had tears in my eyes and he prayed over me. And by the way, do you think that if eight or ten adults did that together once a week, that one, you'd have an amazing worship service. Second, they would really grow in learning how to speak the gospel to one another. And they would cherish Christ in such rich and profound ways. And so that's, that's a few things that we've learned to do together, and I hope those ideas will serve you. Um, in fact, what I'd like you to do right now, is I, if, if, do we have the time to do it? Oh, we do, we do, yeah. Um, I want you to, with the person you're sitting next to that you feel comfortable with, I want you to share where you need Jesus right now. And I want you to take a risk. The, person, the other person, speak the truths of the gospel to their need to build them up, to encourage them, to help them cherish Christ. Can you do that? Okay. Some of you are going like, I'm done, I'm out of here. That's fine. <laughs> we got a few more songs to sing, just so you know. But, so you don't want to miss that. But just try it. I, 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 in fact, I'll just have one of you do it. So one, take the risk to share the need. One, take the risk to proclaim the good news. I won't have both of you do it back and forth. You can do it maybe later just to save time. Just go ahead and try it. Give you a few minutes. Hey, anybody get any good news? Sorry to interrupt you. Anybody get good news? Anybody a little, a little bit like just in that moment like, Jesus is good. I need him. I need a brother or sister to tell me again about him. But by the way, and I'm going to invite the band up in just a moment. We, I think we've wrongly understood confession as confessing what I did wrong instead of what I was believing. Like we're confessional people. Whenever we say confessional, we mean we state out loud what we believe. 
And so when we confess our sins, we're confessing what we haven't been believing, which is leading to what we're doing. And I didn't have time to walk through it, and this is not a promotion of the book, but I'm going to tell you it's in the book. <laughs> that wasn't why I said it. But this idea of fruit to root, we, we, we have to train people how to pr- confess out loud what they've been believing about God, what God's done, and who they are, because that's what's producing their behaviors. It's all those things under the surface. And the more that we can confess out loud, you know, I've been believing, like in my case, that the church is dependent on me and that my righteousness is connected to the, my fruitfulness in ministry instead of Jesus. And as I, sometimes even when you say it out loud, you're like, I don't really believe that. Parents, ever, have you ever said, like, I just feel like God's out of control with our kids? Like, I, like anybody, I have. Like, now, I know that's not true, but it's what I feel. It's what I'm thinking. It's what I'm believing in the moment. It's like, and that's why I've got so much anxiety because I don't know how to run to the refuge and shelter who is my rock in my time of need because I feel like he's not trustworthy with my kids. So why in the world am I going to pray to him when I don't believe he actually has things under control? So then what do I do? I try to control my kids instead of go to God and pray that he will take control over my kids' lives. And when I confess that out loud and my wife and I do that together, we go right back to Jesus then. And every time we confess out loud what we're believing, we see it for what it is. The Holy Spirit corrects it and then leads us to what is true in Christ. And so I say this because if you aren't teaching your people to regularly confess out loud what they're believing and then to speak what is true about Jesus into the confession, they're not going to have the confidence to share the gospel with a group of people who don't even confess they believe anything. Does that make sense? So... I'm going to end with this. I'm going to invite the band up. I I wish we could have communion right now, honestly. (laughs) But maybe that's another time this week. Do you guys do that later? Yeah, okay, great. Maybe you can put this into it. So, Sorry, I'm I'm not trying to control the program, James. You do what you need to do. (laughs) Maybe you can think about this in your churches. We take communion every single Sunday. Not because I think we're better or right. It's just what we do. The reason why is because I think people forget every week. And there's something about taking a physical reminder and putting it inside of you that helps you to remember, right? When you see someone get baptized and they go under the water, you're like, I remember my baptism. When you go to a wedding and you see people take their vows, you're brought back to your wedding. When you take communion, you remember your first love. And you do that over and over again. And so what we do is at the end of my message, I always call for a time of response I say we respond in three ways. One, we're going to give because he gave. And if you're not a Christian, we don't expect you to do that, but we give because Jesus gave everything for us, and we want other people to meet the, the God who gave everything for them. And so we give to, to make sure others get to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give because he gave. He's been so generous, so give in light of his generosity for you. Second, we're going to come to the table. We're going to remember Jesus today. This is for Christians, for those who express faith in Christ. In fact, today may be the first day you take communion because you're going to express your faith in Jesus today for the first time. And I always set it up something like that. I explain what it is, and then I always connect it to the message I just preached. So I say, hey, today we just talked about this last week was John must, says he must become greater, I must, be, I must decrease, right? And so I then would say something. We didn't gather because of the virus, so, but, so I didn't get to do this this week. Uh, but what I would have probably said is, where in your life do you know that Jesus needs to become much greater because you've been trusting in yourself far more than him? And when you come to the table, say that in your heart. And then when you get together with your family, your friends, or your mission community, because we do this in circles, uh, just say out loud whatever that is. Work. Parenting. 
my own sense of righteousness, my behavior, whatever. Say it out loud if you feel comfortable. You don't have to. You can do it by yourself, but I invite you to do this. So every week, they proclaim out loud their need for Jesus, and then someone in the circle volunteers to pray the good news of Jesus into those needs. And we do this every single week. We do this for five years. You do that every single week for five years, eventually they start learning that the gospel actually applies to almost everything, and they see the text preaching Jesus every week. Both are happening. And they don't know it. I'm just training them without them realizing it. That's what liturgy is. It's the work of the people, helping them learn how to work it out in their life. So I hope that you'll, you'll begin to think through how could we think about our gatherings more intentionally, our equipping times more gospel-centered, our preaching that makes much of Jesus, and why don't we practice that by singing, okay? In fact, I want you to do this. Don't just sing these songs. Whatever they're going to sing, go, how does this help me cherish him? And, and don't just r- routinely say the words. If you have to, close your eyes, be quiet, sit down, get on your knees, whatever you have to do, to really embrace the truth of the gospel in these songs, they're not made for us just to sing. And that's the third way we respond at our church. I'd say we give, we take the, be- the meal, and then we praise him with all our hearts because he is worthy of all our praise, honor, and glory. So let's stand up and give him glory in whatever way you need to. If you want to sit, if you want to stand, you want to be on your knees, you want to close your eyes, you want to just listen to the songs, turn them into prayers, However you need to, respond in a way that you cherish Jesus for all that he is and all that he's done for you. He's worthy of praise, is he not? He sure is. Pastors, who's the worship leader in your church? It's not a trick question, but Jesus. Years ago, I had a brand new Christian after our gathering said, man, that worship was so amazing. I said, yeah, didn't Aaron do a great job? He goes, not the music. I'm talking about what you said. You're preaching. I'm not saying you guys aren't worship leaders, just to be clear. (laughs) But preachers, you ought to preach in such a way that you led worship before the singers got up. And then when the singers got up, they were like, it's about time we can now finally say everything we want to say to Jesus. I hope I led you to worship our king. Let's give him praise. He's worthy. Amen.